everyone, welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 16. I'm Nick Dixon and I'm joined as ever by QPR's third most famous fan, Toby Young. Coming up on the show today, Gary Neville mouths off again, Clarkson gets cancelled and Nick meets the top G, Andrew Tate. Very exciting. More on that later as well as our top stories and of course, peak woke. But Toby, we've got to start with Clarkson. And first, by the way, I put you as the third, third most famous QPR fan. I had the Queen top. And I had Sean Walsh second. Then I thought about it. I was like, the Queen is sadly deceased. And you might be more famous than Sean Walsh in certain circles. So maybe you are the most famous QPR fan. Robert Elms is um, is also a fan. I don't know if he used to have a, a show on Radio London. No, you're no? definitely more famous than him. You're definitely <laughs> above him. So you're doing all right. Um, let's do this Clarkson story, which has gone massive. So I'm sure you've heard it, dear listeners. Jeremy Clarkson did a uh, column about... Meghan Markle in the sun, and he basically, it was such an obvious Game of Thrones satire, to me at least, although even the mighty Simon Evans told me he didn't get the satire, so he said that people should line up and throw excrement at Meghan as she walked naked through the streets, and uh, people didn't like this, and they (laughs) took quite badly to it, and it's gone absolutely mental, everyone's trying to cancel him, which is pretty absurd to me, you've had Carol Drinkwater saying he should lose his job on LBC, John Nicholson from the SNP saying the same, Caroline Noakes, one of these useless Tories writing a letter saying how awful it is. Carol Vorderman saying he should be cancelled in the name of kindness, which is a fascinating uh, paradox there. It's kind, apparently, to campaign to get people sacked. And David Baddiel even went further and called the original thing even misogynistic fancy in the first place. So it doesn't matter that it's a Game of Thrones satire because apparently he said, it might just be me, but I'd say the Game of Thrones shame walk sequence is also a violent misogynistic fancy, never mind that it's enacted by the most deranged ideologues in the series who meet a very nasty uh, comeuppance afterwards. Anyway, all these people piled in. I can talk about it at length. Dom Jolly, as if he's a good person. Jason Manfred, these are such amazing people. And they've gone full cancel culture. We've learned nothing, Toby. If we're playing outraged top trumps, I think I can top all of the people you've mentioned, you left out Nicola Sturgeon. The most extreme overreaction I've encountered so far, and this could yet be topped, was by Chris Packham, the um, self-appointed opponent of, of of shooting and various country field sports, um, BBC nature show presenter. Calls himself a naturalist. Is that a nudist or is that different? <laughs> no, that's different. That's a naturist. <laughs> yeah, no, he's not a naturist. Um, he's a naturalist. Um, anyway, so he said... It's hate crime, pure and simple. If there were any sort of justice, there would be laws that would jail him and shut down the publisher. Is this the country we want to live in? Is this what we should tolerate? We must ask ourselves, where is this leading? Nowhere good. And I, you know, when I read that, I thought, hang on a minute, Chris, you know, we're supposed to ask ourselves what sort of country we're going to live in if Jeremy Clarkson isn't locked up for making a joke in poor taste about Meghan Markle. I, I, I would ask, where, where, what sort of country would we live in if people were actually jailed for making jokes or comments in bad taste? Um, but no, that seems to be a much better place in Chris Packham's view than um, the country we currently live in, where so far at least, J- Jeremy Clarkson has not been fired, um, either by The Sun or by Amazon. Those 60 MPs have written to the editor of The Sun, not quite asking him for him to be fired, but more or less, you know, reading between the lines, asking for the son to terminate his column. It is extraordinary. It's, I mean, the, the extent of the overreaction, I mean, the outrage, the horror at um, 
at, at his column. It's almost as though people are demanding that Jeremy Clarkson be stripped naked, made to walk through the streets of Westminster while people cry shame and throw excrement at him. People claim that what he said contributes to the epidemic of violence against women and girls. But in order to try and prevent this epidemic of violence, they don't seem to have any inhibition about kind of wanting to do violence to Jeremy Clarkson, including depriving him of his liberty. Um, It is is an extraordinary overreaction. I mean, I can understand why some people thought it was in bad taste, but people have been interpreting this um, as an attack on women, as an expression of misogyny or indeed racism, um, when, you know, it's quite plainly an attack on Meghan Markle, not all women, <laughs> but Meghan Markle. And and actually, when people have said, you know, he's advocating violence against women, well, he's not really even advocating violence against Meghan Markle, is, is he? I mean, he's not, he's not, he doesn't, he's not saying he fantasizes about her being beaten by people in the street, um, but just having excrement thrown at her. I mean, is that violence? I mean, it's unpleasant. And, you know, it, it's an expression of disgust. But it's not It's not exactly, you know, it's not exactly violence, is it? What do you think about that? Well, it's a sort of finer point, Toby. But yeah, he's not inciting <laughs> violence. He's exciting, inciting excrement. But he's not even inciting anything. Because like you, I, I worked out that it was a satire. Also like you, I made the shame point. So I, did, I put this tweet. Clarkson was just doing an obvious, if crude and misjudged Game of Thrones satire, he was also lampooning himself with the absurd exaggeration of his hatred. But now we have to go through the cancellation ritual yet again, ironically chanting shame at him. We've learned nothing. So the part I added, and I was going to tweet that before he even said it was Game of Thrones. I decided not to get involved, but now I can't resist. But I knew that straight away. It's obvious the shame walk. But if you haven't seen it, it's not obvious. But the other part I've said there, other people haven't pointed out, he's, he's lampooning himself with the absurd nature of his hate. He's like, I hate this person so much. And he, he's sort of aware, like, I'm this middle-aged man who just is so grumpy and annoyed by this. There's an element of self-awareness in there, I believe. You have to, be, you have, to have half a brain to see it, though. And these people just yeah. decide to take it very literally. And it's yeah. like Dom Jolly attacking, gone. As you say, they've decided to kind of interpret it in the least charitable way and in the most literal, unnuanced way. Uh, so they can then kind of sort of perform being outraged um, and advance, you know, a variety of hobby horses and political causes, um, including, you know, um, attacking the sun. It is that, isn't it? I mean, it, it's hard to imagine that anyone actually read it and... Um, was kind of instantly outraged and horrified. I mean, 99% at least of people who read it, particularly people in public life, politicians, comedians, TV personalities, etc., they will have been aware, you know, that it was a reference to Game of Thrones, that there was an element of um, self-parody, um, that he was exaggerating, that this was only a fantasy. He wasn't actually advocating that this should be done to all women. Um, I mean, they must know that, but they're pretending to, to to kind of be less kind of capable readers than they are. It's like a kind of mass exercise in being a bad reader. Novelists talk about, you know, how do you deal with bad readers, people who kind of completely misinterpret what you've written or take things that are intended ironically, literally, and, you know, or even bad fans, people who've misunderstood what you're trying to say and imagine you're on their side in some ideological crusade when you're not. You know, but it's as though this is a kind of orgy, an orgy of kind of bad readers kind of um, spasming in the public square and demanding all sorts of, you know, demanding that all these punishments should be inflicted on on Clarkson, it's as though he. I mean, what, what's slightly annoying about it is that 
you know, it, 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 he's kind of given all this ammunition to the professionally offended. He's given them a pretext for kind of um, uh, demanding, you know, anti-misogyny laws, demanding that the son stop publishing kind of laddish males. Um, uh, no doubt Meghan Markle will be demanding a public apology. This is actually what what, what the MPs have, have said in their letter. They've said not only should the son um, discipline him, i.e. fire him, but they've, they've also demanded that he apologise to Meghan Markle. And, you know, if you're pretending to take what he said literally, then you must understand that he does hate... Then you, presumably you interpret his claim that he hates Meghan Markle at a cellular level completely literally. So in asking him to make a public apology to Meghan Markle, you're asking him to humiliate himself in a way which is, you know, as psychologically harmful to him as it would be for Meghan to strip naked and have excrement thrown at her. Um, so, you know, there's, it, it, but all in the name of kindness, as you said at the beginning. I mean, it is ridiculous. Well, yeah, well, that was Carol Vordman. She said, I've received a lot of abuse of, but it's like watching the last death throes of a dinosaur age. Sad souls who are angry at new thought at equality at kindness but this chapter has also brought the calm normally silent people together we fight on what a load of bollocks i mean yeah you're so kind and she she was quote tweeting an mp trying to get someone sacked how is that kind vorderman use your alleged brain obviously she's just trying to remain relevant and going over to the woke side maybe she was already on that side complete nonsense and clarkson had her on a, on his show back on top gear but then they're, they're never grateful but you said so many things there. One is the deliberate lack of context. So Badil's pretending he can't understand the context of Game of Thrones. You could argue Game of Thrones is quite an amoral universe, especially the ending revealed that, and that the author perhaps is dodgy, therefore, because he's trying to present as this amoral landscape. But certainly within the series, if you take it at face value, the, the people doing the, the sequence are so punished, the, the shame walk, that they the, the author's clearly not on their side. As to your other point, giving them ammunition... That's a kind of victim blaming though, isn't it, Toby? I mean, you know, these are just horrible, evil people, and but we have to sort of not give them anything. Though I do understand sometimes optically we can be a bit you know, people on our side, let's let's call it, can be a bit well, stupid. You're right. You're right. It, it does it does feel a bit like victim blaming. Um, I didn't really ever think of Jeremy Clarkson as a victim, but you know, you could it's almost as though it shifted the balance of power slightly back in Megan's favour, and that's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> that is annoying, but the, the, the context thing, did I, did I say that? It reminded me of Jimmy Carr's joke when they all pretended to take that literally. Did I say that? I, I'm going mad. I can't remember if I I don't think you did it. say that, no. Well, they all suddenly said, oh, joke in inverted commas. It, it was on a comedy stage. It was a joke. Clarkson's article was meant to be humor. And people like, as I say, Dom Jolly attacking him, one of the nastiest guys on Twitter. This also bothers me. Jason Manford was caught, you know, with a, uh, doing things in his bedroom, let's say, with, with another woman over online in, while his wife's in the other room had a go at me threw me under the bus to 400,000 people at my lowest point when I was being piled on by the comedy world and it was in the national newspapers this guy's got no moral high ground where do these people get off and then Welby recently Justin Welby even said that cancel culture has gone too far and that we're crucifying people but it's funny how we just we there's been sort of murmurings even amongst the kind of woke side a little bit of like oh yeah maybe cancel culture's you know, I, they normally say it doesn't exist, but then a few of them have said, oh, maybe it's bad. But, you know, they now they all just go full on cancel culture again. Five minutes later, they'll be telling us it doesn't exist. That's incredibly infuriating. But what it comes down to is just, it's their, Meghan Markle is their girl. That's her, their person. For whatever reason, that person's ended up on their side of the culture war. 
And Clarkson's, whether we want him or not, is basically on our side for some reason. You know, and it's just that simple, isn't it? It's just that tribal. It is that tribal. And um, I guess just as, you know, when someone on their side is caught doing something a bit silly and we see an opportunity to attack, are we more restrained? Do we act less like them? Do we say, well, I can see the nuance and the context and I can see you weren't meaning to be taken completely literally when you were defending minor attracted persons um, or you were just discussing it in a sort of intellectually abstract way rather than actually defending paedophilia. But nonetheless, I'm going to attack, 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 because that's just that's just that's just the way we operate these days. That is uh, that's the language of cultural political discourse. For myself, I can say that I'm always incredibly fair, but you know, I don't know about everyone. Um, and what did you think, lastly, to his apology? I might just bring it up here. I mean, the question is, should you ever apologize to these scum? Oh, dear, I'd rather put my foot in it. In a column I wrote about Megan, I made a clumsy reference to a scene in Game of Thrones, and this has gone down badly with a great many people. I'm horrified to have caused so much hurt, and I shall be more careful in future. I mean, to me, that's fine. Uh, to me, the question is, should you apologize at all to these, these disingenuous, horrible people? But... I think that's perfectly fine to say, you know, I didn't mean to upset people. I'll be more careful. I mean, yeah, being more careful would probably be the solution. What did you think? To well, he's made, a, he's made a classic mistake, which had he contacted the Free Speech Union, I would have advised him not to do. Never um, apologize. Which is, which is, well, I think the general rule is never apologize because it's never enough. Uh, and this is a perfect illustration of that. He's issued that apology. And in the letter that 60 MPs have written to the editor of The Sun, they've demanded he make a much more, a much fuller, um, uh, more humiliating apology than that one. Um, it's like, you know, in the same way that various institutions publish kind of BLM solidarity statements at the height of the BLM brouhaha in what, June, July 2020. Like it was so, so often they were then attacked by their employees for not going far enough, for being insufficiently pious. They'd taken one knee, but not two, or they hadn't <laughs> thrown themselves to the ground and abased themselves at the feet of a kind of statue of George Floyd or whatever it might be. But it's never enough. You know, once once you once you begin to apologize, once you meet try and meet them halfway, they just sense weakness and you know and go for the jugular. That's what happened to me when I was cancelled at the beginning of 2018 and stepped down from the position that was outraging everyone I'd been appointed to. Um, and I issued an apology um, for some of the more stupid things, more sophomoric things I'd said late at night on Twitter. And I thought that'll draw a line under it. Very naive. That was effectively like throwing, you know, a um, hunk of raw meat to a shoal of piranha fish. They just the feed. They just turned. They just went completely crazy. And it turned into a feeding frenzy. And I'm sure that if Jeremy Clarkson did issue the fuller apology that the MPs are demanding, that would just be the beginning of the end for him. He would then be fired by Amazon, fired by the Sun. He'd never work again. That would be the beginning of a longer apology tour. Uh, absolutely. You can never apologize to these scumbags, even though as the apology goes, I'm saying it was not bad. But yes, of course, the best thing is don't do it. I like to think I'd have said something like, I was doing a satire of Game of Thrones. You, you might have thought it was distasteful, but I was going for humor. But mainly, these scumbags have no moral authority to judge me. And I'm, I, you know, I, I, I answer only to God. I'd have probably said something like that, because that's the key thing. These people are not moral people. They are not in a position to judge. And as a Christian, you can be judged by God, but no one else, certainly not Dom Jolly or Jason Mavid or David Baddiel, as if these are great people. Come on. Well, I think I think their unwillingness to actually accept apologies is um, 
symptomatic of the fact that they are kind of post-Christian. It's 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 a religious cult that has many things in common with Christianity, but it's also forgotten to embrace some of the more attractive aspects of Christianity, like the ability to forgive, like distinguishing between the sin and the sinner, like giving people who you're angry with and who've transgressed an opportunity, a way back, an opportunity to do penance and come back. I discovered that when I was cancelled. I thought, well, it's not like when Profumo was able to rehabilitate himself by you know, engaging in charitable works. When the mob came for me and all my other positions, most of which were working for charities. I had to step down from everyone in succession because, you know, you're, you're not you're not you're not a fit person to engage in charity once you've been cancelled. So, yeah, there's there's no way back as far as they're concerned. Once you're out, you're permanently exiled. And that was Welby's point the other day. We know Welby's all over the map and usually awful, but that was one good point he made that there's yes. no forgiveness now. But Toby, just to quickly and lastly on this, defend Christians. It's not like Christianity, the woke mob. It may be like some of the worst excesses of branches of Christianity in history. I wouldn't say, you said it has a lot in common with Christianity except this. I don't really think it does personally. But. Well, I think the point that the historian uh, Tom Holland made in Dominion, but has often made um, in different, different places, is that um, the veneration of victims, turning victims into something sacred and seeing them as virtuous, venerating the weak, that seems to have its roots in Christianity. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe I'll read that book and then and then rebuke <laughs> you and, and win that debate. But I, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't read books because I've been told not to by Andrew Tate, but let, more on that later. Um, <laughs> let's do our new section, Birdwatch. All right, so Birdwatch is very complicated this week. The vicissitudes of Twitter, great word, that have been uh, have been ongoing, Toby, this week. We had the journos banned for doxing Elon's jet. Did they really dox it or not? I say they did. Some say they didn't. He suspended them briefly, spent them for seven days. Then he did a poll. Should I bring them back on? People said yes, so he did. But everyone went mental in that brief interim. CNN threatened to leave. Oh, no. Wikipedia referred to it as the Thursday night massacre, which is pathetic. Uh, Keith Olbermann was tweeting from his dog's account, and Musk was finding it very amusing. Then Olbermann shouted at him, it's a dog rescue account, genius. So genius was with a capital G. No one knows why, but that's Olbermann, a bizarre person. Then it was quite funny. Even after he brought them back on, Taylor Lorenz, this horrific, sort of totally nasty, disingenuous doxing specialist was suspended for prior doxing which is quite quite funny i mean that's must just go back and say oh you've done this bad stuff in the past as i say it's it's the it's the big benign dictator then there was this idea can uh, you you advertise other other social media platforms musk released this unpopular policy where he said you shouldn't be able to just link to other platforms he then sort of moderated it said well no it's, it, that can't be your whole thing you can't just be an account that exists to link to mastodon but then that would prove quite an unpopular policy he seems to have walked it back a bit and then last two, most important, the poll offering to step down that Musk put out, and he lost the poll with 57% against, should I step down? Basically, people said yes, if you call that against. He off Lex Friedman offered to do it, and Musk pointed out, well, you, you have to be ready for a lot of pain, and we've been facing bankruptcy since May. Then there was the Twitter files, six and seven, I think, since we last came on, at least, and the, these focus on the FBI interference, which is particularly damning. The FBI basically seeded this idea that the Hunter Biden laptop was a, a hack and dump operation, meaning people had stripped his information off the laptop and just released it, whereas actually it was genuine. It was the real laptop. No one had hacked and dumped it. But once they put this idea in, in people's heads, like Yoel Roth, he was happy to then go, 
Well, he did push back a bit, but then he went, oh, this does look a lot like hack and dump because they'd told him earlier this is a hack and dump. So very dodgy FBI, very pushing Twitter to claim things and misinformation that aren't. What is your take on anything to do with that this week, Toby? Yeah, well, um, I guess um, I feel, I'm beginning to feel a little bit sorry for Elon Musk, and I never thought I would feel sorry for someone who was until very recently anyway, the richest man in the world. Um, but he, he does seem to be struggling with um, this position, this very public position of responsibility he's been thrust into. I thought banning the various um, critical liberal journalists um, for supposedly doxing him when actually what they'd done was, I think in every case they'd linked to, uh, they had at some point flagged up the um the, the account which tracks Elon's jet travel in real time. Um, but that's not quite the same thing as doxing. And he so he's had to sort of row back a bit and say, OK, well, I'm not going to, even though if you do dox people, that is a total no-no. Since you've only linked to accounts doxing me, um, I'm no, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to make it a temporary suspension. They were also kind of through this poll in as well, kind of uh, constantly asking the Twitterati exactly how he should respond, which is kind of an odd way to go about governing, like kind of direct democracy, I suppose, except, you know, the polls aren't necessarily <laughs> representative samples of Twitter. Um, uh, and, th- and then he kind of got into, he got his kind of knickers in a twist again over, um, he was going to ban ban anyone who, as you said earlier, who referred to another social media channel. And then, okay, that was a bit too extreme. So he sort of rode back on that. And it was just these five social media channels, including Facebook and Mastodon. Um, and then you felt that the reason he then conducted a poll about whether he should step down as CEO is because he's actually finding it all a bit of a nightmare and he knows it's not doing his kind of reputation much good. And um, that's reflected obviously in the share price of Tesla, which has lost half a trillion dollars in market value uh, since the beginning of September when he took over Twitter. So, you know, and that, that's what cost him the title of the world's richest man. And um, Twitter, which lost 221 million in 2021, this is dollars, is apparently, according to The Economist, on track to lose $4 billion this year or in the 22 to 23 financial year. Um, so you can understand why he'd want to step down. I mean, it just seems to be his world seems to be falling apart. Um, uh, and he doesn't seem to be very good at, at kind of running this kind of very high profile company um, and dealing with all the criticism and fallout. And it would be better, I think, if he was to appoint, you know, a more seasoned, less high profile CEO who could run it in a kind of more orderly way and create a kind of rules based um, culture uh, within Twitter and on the social media platform um, uh, than Musk seems capable of. And I have to say, Nick, uh, without wanting to say I told you so, um, the reservations I was expressing last week about Musk being, you know, um, uh, a free speech champion and standing up for what we believe in and him not being, you know, him not quite being the one we'd like him to be and wishing wishing he was a bit more like Ron DeSantis and a little less like Donald Trump. It feels like, you know, in the past week, my, my views sort of been vindicated. Um, uh, he, Funny he, you he think just, that. He, he just, he's, he's not emerging from this particularly well, even, you know, even though I support him, I like what he's trying to do. And I think Twitter's a far better place than it was before he took over. And I think the fact that he's released the Twitter files is fantastic. And it gives us all this great ammo um, to prosecute the free speech wars with. Uh, but 
I think I'd vote for him to step down, um, assuming he wow. gets to appoint the CEO. Well, that's mad. Um, I would not vote for him to step down. And um, I will share, share this little Babylon B article here. And they said, uh, Bruce Wayne polls Arkham inmates asking if he should step down as Batman. And they've got Bruce Wayne and it's real underscore dark underscore night. <laughs> should I step down as Batman? I will abide by the results of this poll. And uh, obviously a bad idea because you're asking all these nutters on Twitter who hate Musk what they think. You're asking bots. You're asking the people who just want their Tesla stock to go back up. So a lot of interested parties, let's say. I will uh, partly agree with you on a couple of things. There was a very interesting Twitter space about was Musk being emotional because he has been under such attack because there's these brilliant Twitter spaces at the moment. Sometimes Musk himself joins them. You get all kinds of very famous people on them. It's very exciting. And they were saying, "Is it, this looks like an emotional decision and he's just under pressure and saying, well, I'll step down there. There was another theory. No, no, he's got a CEO lined up already and he's just playing games. And there was a theory off the back of that theory that it was Jared Kushner because he'd been pictured with him at the World Cup. And Kushner would be a terrible choice, of course, classic controlled opposition, the guy who was very bad for Trump. But other people said, no, no, Kushner's just a potential investor because he has money to spend. But I think where I will slightly agree with you but in a sort of different way is, is the way that he's like Trump. So I have a different take on that. And I'm going to combine it actually with, with something uh, Mike Cernovich said, if I can find both. I'll just read out what I had on Trump. I'll read it out because I phrase it better in tweets, guys. So I said, like Trump, Musk surely underestimated who and what he was up against. These are ruthless ideologues who don't think twice about doxing a child or bombing a country. <laughs> They're trying to destroy the West as we've known it. So a few human lives are trivial to them. I went quite hard with that tweet. I now see that was one of my late night tweets. What I was trying to say was Musk underestimated, much like Trump, that he thought he was buying a tech company. And Cernovich put it very well here. He said, Elon thought he was buying a business. What he discovered was an intelligence community cutout designed to lie to the public and manipulate popular opinion. And what I'm saying and what Cernovich is saying are very similar that, you know, Musk has come in as a businessman. All right, we'll, we'll turn this tech company around, but he's up against the FBI. He's up against the Democrats. He's up against these horrific journalists who are happy to dox your child. They actually want to hurt Musk, I believe. I believe it's that simple. And we see now the, the bloodlust for Clarkson well, imagine how much people want to take down Musk. And so that's how, that's how I see it. So he underestimated that. However, if he was going to step down, the reason I'm against it is who else can do it? As he said, you need to, be to take a lot of pain and it's a bankrupt company but or heading for bankruptcy potentially. But who could do it? Who, could, who, could, who wouldn't flake? You know, Jack was too flaky. Jack was too weak to do it. These people like Yol Roth were obviously a disaster. But who would be tough enough to stand up? To this, I mean, maybe Trump himself, but not many people would be tough enough to stand up to this onslaught. Maybe Trump Jr. I mean, who would you pick? I offered to do it, and I've said my reign would be a reign of terror, straightforward reign of terror, just taking vengeance on the entire regime. No principles, no rules, just <laughs> just a sort of bloody well, that, 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 Ivan the Fourth esque reign of terror. More like a reign of error, but wouldn't wouldn't <laughs> um, wouldn't you wouldn't it then just become indistinguishable from you know? parlor or truth social um, yeah I'm, I'm only and, joking there but but who could seriously take it on toby uh well i'm i'm, I'm still waiting for the call nick um <laughs> I, I was hoping to be you know get the call up to be one of the people releasing the twitter files but curiously that hasn't happened um yeah i don't i mean it's a good question um uh, but i don't imagine you know um there's no one who could do it. I think someone someone could be fairly tough, um, believe in free speech as strongly as Musk does, want to, you know share his vision for the platform, but but go go about kind of realizing that vision in a more 
kind of sober, grown-up way. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's out of the question, is it? There must be some people in that world, some kind of potential CEOs. That, and he's got, he, he could certainly reward him. He's got the money to, to, to attract top talent. Yeah, but it's whether they have the political will, Toby. That's a strange thing. They have to be a CEO. They have to have the business sense. They have to have maybe an understanding of tech companies, ideally. But they also would have to have the political understanding and political will to fight this free speech battle. And there's almost no one in that Venn diagram except probably Musk. I mean, who would really understand it? Who wouldn't just start capitulating on very key points because there was a bit of pressure from advertisers? Musk has stood Mm. up to these big ad agencies. He stood up to a lot of people. And so who would do that? I know know he could have done it more soberly, and it's much like Trump. We end up saying, well, I wish we had the good bit without the bad bit. But who is this person who could soberly withstand the onslaught of the deep state? Well, I... They'd have to have the support of their board. I think that would be important. Um, and I think, as far as I know, Trump has fired the board, so he needs to appoint a new board. And um, I could, it'd Musk. be good to, 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 yeah, sorry, Musk. It would be good if he appointed, you know, Jay Bhattacharya, Barry Weiss, Matt Taibbi, um, Michael Schellenberg, all the people he's trusted to release the Twitter files would also be good board members, I think. And with those people, the CEO answering to those people, I think he would be, could, she could be quite robust. I don't know. I don't think, I don't think it's an impossible problem to solve. Just very quickly on Barry Weiss, did you know that um, she actually, she pushed back and said, oh, he shouldn't have doxed these, he shouldn't have suspended the doxing yeah. journalists. I thought that was quite uh, ungrateful. Now, you could say, look, I'm just a totally down the line journalist and I've got so much integrity I then attack Musk immediately but on a social intelligence level the richest man in the world has just given you an incredible exclusive the next day you're like yeah he was totally wrong on this and then Musk responded you're just virtue signaling Barry, trying to keep your, your foot in both camps I wouldn't have done that just on pure you know just basic uh, social intelligence yeah I did think about it My, you know I suppose it was a sort of a dilemma that I struggled with as well I mean you know wearing my general secretary of the free speech union hat i you know i have to be quick to condemn attacks on free speech carried out by people on my side otherwise people think it's just you know um, a completely partisan organization and doesn't have much credibility uh, but i couldn't bring myself to the most like or, or like the, the only thing i could think to say uh, i i couldn't go any further than simply saying the mainstream media has devoted far far more attention to the banning of nine liberal journalists than it has to the Twitter files, um, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, here, here's this evidence that Twitter has been used by the FBI and other state agencies to suppress dissent, um, you know, across a nation, across the world. Um, uh, it shadow banned Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford, because he was critical of the lockdown policy. You know, the number of voices who've been silenced as revealed by the Twitter files, is it's like it's, it runs into the millions, um, totally ignored by the mainstream media. But the moment nine liberal journalists are banned for 24 hours suddenly it's a christ free speech crisis and they're up in arms about it so yeah i, I made that point but i didn't go any further <laughs> didn't i didn't want to i'm still hoping for the call nick uh, um, yeah <laughs> i made a similar point on that it was absolutely disgusting the eu and the un started saying the un uh under secretary general said she was deeply disturbed by the way they were being arbitrarily suspended media freedom is not a toy the eu weighed in saying that um the, the, something about respect of media freedom and fundamental rights. Musk should be aware of that. There are red lines and sanctions soon. And the BBC, like you say, covered the whole thing after total silence on the Twitter files. I thought it was absolutely disgusting. I mean, 
These institutions, they don't even try anymore. I mean, the EU and the UN, okay, we know they're evil, but then the BBC as well. Come, on, We know the BBC are dodgy and, and totally biased, but come on. You, you, you cover this story immediately, but you don't cover the Twitter files. I think that's so pathetic from the BBC. Isn't that absolutely I'll give, lame? I, I, I'll give you a nice little um, tiny example of um, the BBC's bias when it comes to covering these stories. So various alt-media publications ran stories on what was referred to in most of the stories as the proposed climate lockdown in Oxford and Canterbury with Oxford City Count- Oxford County Council um, saying about Oxford, the city of Oxford, it was going to divide it into six 15-minute zones and um, place a limit on how often you could drive from one zone to another in your Yeah, we covered car. it. We will on a previous one. Okay. Um, and uh, it got almost no coverage in the mainstream media. I think it was covered in, you know, in the local press in Oxford and Canterbury, but not not by the BBC anyway. Um, but then the BBC's climate disinformation specialist, who knew, but apparently that person exists, um, ran a story a couple of days ago saying that disinformation about Oxford County Council's plan um, for um, imposing these restrictions on the city of Oxford and Canterbury, disinformation had resulted in, in the councillors receiving death threats it was a kind of um, it was a kind of it was in the, in the same kind of ballpark as the objections to Clarkson's comments. It's like uh, if 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 you if you say certain things that challenge the orthodoxy, that challenge the prevailing narrative, harm will come to people. And in this case, these poor beleaguered councillors had received death threats by people who'd um, exaggerated, and it was all the fault of um, you know these alt media sites like the Daily Skeptic, which had exaggerated the extent of the plans. It wasn't going to be a climate lockdown. It was just going to be a traffic calming measure. And, you know, it's somewhere in between those two things. And I think, you know, anyway, I ran this, uh, I ran the kind of BBC story um, uh, on on the on the Daily Skeptic site, which and, and James duly accused me, James Dellingpole, of being a cuck for, <laughs> for for running this. But yeah, they've done that before, haven't they? With with climate so called disinformation, they say, "Oh, you're harming the the people that you know the you're attacking the the people that, that say it on these mainstream channels." And no, we're just we're criticizing it. It reminds me of that BBC story of a a silly one involving Tommy Robinson. I know you're not allowed to mention him; he's the bad man, as Callum calls him. But the BBC ran a story on him. Where he had actually been the hero, there was like an old woman. I think there was someone was being attacked, a woman, and he stopped the assailant from attacking them. But the BBC reported it as a passerby. They didn't think it was like necessary to mention this incredibly famous person. I thought it was really interesting. They just they w- couldn't possibly say who it was because he was the, he was the hero in that particular story. I thought that was interesting. On this um, Twitter f- uh, files, last word on this. We didn't touch on the FBI thing. I didn't get your take on that. Have you followed it? This guy Elvis Chan very involved in seeding information to Twitter and Jim Baker, who was sort of at Twitter previously at the FBI, all sort of one blob. And and they, they were pressuring Twitter to claim this Hunter Biden laptop story was, was misinformation when it wasn't. Yeah, that was pretty shocking. We, we knew already that the FBI had um, put pressure on senior executives like Yol Roth at um uh, at, at Twitter to um, suppress stories like the Biden laptop story, but this was this, this revealed the extent of the pressure and how extensive it was. Um, one, 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 one revealing thing about the Twitter files is that they weren't, you know, th- these people like Yol weren't put under legal pressure. You know, it didn't sound like the FBI were threatening him or any other Twitter executives with arrest 
if they didn't run, if, if they didn't suppress the Biden laptop story. It was like it was it was they were trying to persuade them. I mean, it was it was, you know, they were leaning on them, applying pressure and in particular moral pressure and sort of appealing to their civic mindedness. You know, it's an ele- we're about to have a presidential election. This could be disinformation created by the Trump campaign. If you run it, it could have an effect on the outcome of that election and so on and so forth. But they were never at any point threatening him with arrest or with being sued. And yet he did it. And I think this is the form that state pressure um, takes when applied to these social media platforms. They know they don't have to go beyond simply appealing to, you know, the uh, you know, well, applying pressure in the variety of ways that they do. And what's so kind of, and what's so, I think, you know, of course, they're at fault for doing that. Um, and it's completely illegitimate. And it's an illegitimate interference in an election. But at the same time, it's also, you know, the Twitter executives who go along with it, and it isn't just Twitter, it's Facebook and the rest of them, even, you know, the mainstream media as well, I think it's because they don't want to be thought of as bad people, because they want to be thought of as responsible citizens, because they're being, you know, treated as stewards of the integrity of the democratic process by, you know, august state agencies like the FBI, that they want to go along with it. That's really the sea change. That's why I think we have um, a much less free um, media ecology than we we did sort of 25 years ago. It's because there is this feeling now that, you know, the government is not the enemy. The state is not the enemy. You know, um, if a politician says something to you, he's not lying. You know, I was brought up as a, as a kind of journalist to believe, you know, there was a famous saying, if a politician tells you something in confidence, the first question you should ask yourself is, why is this lying bastard lying to me? Um, uh, and nowadays it's, um, it's, it's, oh, why is this important man confiding this important piece of information in me of all people? It must be because I'm important just like him. And I'm, and, and maybe he'll invite me to join his club or invite me out to dinner. So I better do exactly what he says. That seems to be the attitude now. It's like they've done a full 180 degree turn from one of absolute hostility to one of kind of supine compliance. You could almost call it corruption, but Certainly, the uh, if you're getting the dinner element. But yeah, you're right. It's also just perhaps naivety. It's just, like I said, there are no journalists. This is why I beat you in the argument last week. There are no journalists anymore, except for these very few. And they're the ones on Twitter that Musk gave the Twitter files to. They just simply aren't journalists. And what they did, just to answer the other thing about your Roth, they were saying this happened in 2016. This was Russian disinformation. This is hack and dump. And this is Russia. And they were saying Russia, Russia, Russia at them. So when your Roth came to eventually go along with it, he was like, you know, this looks an awful lot like hack and dump because they'd told him it was. And my only question there is because we know his politics and we know that his, his politics are very anti-Trump and very pro the regime. Was he just willingly doing that going, oh, good, it's an excuse for me to say it's Russian disinformation? Or was he just dumb enough that he didn't realize they'd planted that in his brain five weeks ago, whatever it was, you know, that's my question with him because he did initially push mm. back a bit on the FBI sort of going, I'm not to- totally comfortable with this. Not sure we should do this. You know, he's, he's realizing there's something a bit off, but then towards the end, he goes, this looks like hack and dump. <laughs> what do you think happened then? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, I suppose, you know, in his defense, if the FBI tells you that this is Russian disinformation intended to, um, affect the outcome of the presidential election because they think that um, it's in Russia's interest for Trump to win and not Hillary Clinton. Um, sorry, or not, not Joe, not Joe Biden. Um, I guess, you know, 
maybe you maybe you are disposed to kind of take that seriously um but you know 25 years ago a senior media executive being told that by the fbi i think would, would his first question would be well how do i know it's true what's the evidence you know show me the evidence persuade me um uh but but just to just to kind of take it on faith or just to be kind of you know um browbeaten into eventually accepting it that does seem a bit pathetic yeah. All right. Well, I think we've pretty thoroughly covered the Twitter files in our Birdwatch this week. Let's go on and do our advert, Toby, if you don't mind. We have another ad from our great friend Thor Holt. And by the way, I thought later, actually, I could have asked for dark rum because that's fairly manly. It's not too bad, is it? Because I do drink dark rum and Coke. And I thought maybe I should have asked for that because that's not too girly. Uh. Have you, has he sent you, has, has the bottle of wine that he's sending you arrived yet? Hasn't arrived, but, I, you know, white wine's all right. But I suddenly realised, you know, I didn't, I didn't need to sound quite as girly as... Because would, would you consider dark <laughs> rum? It's dark. There's something fairly, like, manly about it, isn't there? Borderline? Yeah, I think, I think, I think yeah, I think dark rum is, is a fairly masculine drink. Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, if you have it with Coke, though, is that less masculine? I mean, I want to just start doing... Definitely less masculine. I just want to do those shots that they're doing in old movies and old series. I don't know what they're drinking, but... Whatever they drink in things like Mad Men or whatever it is, or just all these gangster things I watch. What? Because I, I can actually do shots. Shots are quite manly. I was out with uh, Benbridge on that Battle of Ideas night, and we were doing shots. So I can do shots. Anyway, it was quite a desperate attempt to reassert my manhood after last week. But go on, Toby. Sorry for that. <laughs> okay, I've been told um, not to um, do this ad with um, a Scottish accent, so I'm just going to do it in my own voice. <laughs> um, but, but this is Thor speaking. Assumptions are the mother of all mess-ups, aren't they? Imagine then being named Thor, a lifetime of disappointed ladies assuming a hammer of Thor Chris Hemsworth type would appear. Time to clear up a common assumption among sceptic listeners. Just like Elon Musk, I stand for absolute free speech, as demonstrated through my pro bono work for the Free Speech Union. You are an FSU member, aren't you? Despite my delight with the new model Musk rampaging across Twitter, I don't aim my services at billionaires. While oil operator companies pay me £1,600 a day consultancy rates for the benefit of AI and social media hall monitors, that's evil, very, very evil big oil, I am available to coach you from as little as £1,000 for a whole year. And when you work with me, my input will be worth many multiples of your investment. If you'd like to check whether previous clients agree, read my client reviews and recommendations at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Thorholt. And fortunately, it appears that so far, at least, previous lovers don't write reviews. I did suggest that um, given the comic comedy in Thor's ad um you should read it out nick but you, you said you, you needed more prep time so maybe next time um and i think i think we are going to have um a um a weekly skeptic on monday on, on tuesday the 27th of december we're not the types to flake off over that uh, week we're going to do another podcast next week and hopefully because some podcasts will take some podcasters will take you know a christmas break we'll get a huge number of listeners next week because we'll be one of the few podcasters to um be broadcasting that week absolutely I've, broadcasting I've, the said, right word? Yeah. I've said no breaks and i've i've, I've just laid laid down the law i mean obviously toby's in charge but that's been my strong suggestion because we're we're warriors of the podcast world okay well now seems like a good time to pop over to will with our top stories of the week 
So I'm here with Will Jones, our esteemed editor of The Daily Skeptic. We've got some great stories this week. Some of them are kind of awful as well. I often say that. So firstly, Andrew Bridgham spoke in the House of Commons about a leading figure at the British Heart Foundation who's suppressing evidence that COVID vaccines cause heart damage. And he's talked about willful blindness and even compared it to Jimmy Savile being ignored for years at the BBC. Will? Yeah, this is a, a real scandal, this one. Andrew Bridgen, the MP, a Conservative MP, uh, did a speech to an unfortunately near-empty chamber in the Commons, but still, he did it. And it's been widely circulated on social media, so good on him. And he has alleged that uh, a leading figure in the British Heart Foundation, who is a uh, leader of a, a research, a cardiology research department, a major cardiology research department, has been actively concealing damage from the vaccines to people's hearts. And he has actually uh, been, according to Andrew, Andrew Bridgen, been sending out non-disclosure agreements to his members of his team to prevent them from leaking this information uh, to the press and putting it into the public domain. Uh, this is, um, of course, absolutely shocking. Unfortunately, uh, Andrew has not uh, felt able to disclose who this is. And obviously that could, uh, if he hasn't got proof, then that would be a very risky thing to do, uh, libelous. So he's been criticised for that. But even so, it tells us, um, he says it's a very reliable whistleblower source. Um, and I think we can take it seriously. And it is uh, really indicative of the way that the establishment is covering up this problem, this huge problem uh, with the vaccines, which keeps trying to to squeeze out into the public domain and keeps getting squashed. Yeah, absolutely. Very disturbing that, but also, yeah, very crucial that it comes out. So our second story is somewhat similar. Top Australian doctor reveals she's, a, she's vaccine injured and says doctors are being censored. And she's saying that her and her wife have had serious ongoing injuries and that the true rate of adverse events is far higher than the acknowledged rate due to underreporting and even threats from medical regulators. Yeah, this is a major intervention, Nick. Um, really, really crucial. It's in Australia, this the, this doctor, uh, Karen Phelps, is, um, is a, a central figure in uh, in Australian um, kind of, if you like, establishment, woke establishment, if you want to call it that. I mean, really, she's married to a woman. She was one of the first Australians to be married to um, a woman way back in 1998. Uh, she was a leading figure in pressing for lockdowns, vaccine mandates, uh, mass vaccination. I mean, this per- she's a former president of the Australian Medical Association. She is a former federal MP in Australia. This woman could not be more establishment, more central. And she has come out um, and said that this is there is a much bigger problem, much bigger problem with the vaccines and serious adverse effects than is being admitted. That people are being the doctors are being censored and told that they can't talk about it. And this has only happened because she and her wife both experienced serious adverse effects that they, that they are still suffering with. And so she has felt uh, that she must uh, speak out. And interestingly, she's being treated respectfully by the Australian uh, media and um, establishment, so, um, which is what you'd expect for someone of her, of her station, if you like. And what they'll do with that information, I mean, they're going to have major confusion about how they're going to handle this, these revelations. Uh, but it is a major intervention and uh, should make a big difference to moving this, to shifting this narrative. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how this develops. Yeah, and that is kind of what we need is people from the woke establishment, and I'm perfectly happy to call it that, to come out and say these things, and then people will actually listen. So yeah, it sounds like she's the sort of Australian doctor version of Ellen or something like that. But yeah, we have a, a third story on this theme as well from Dr. Angus Dowagleish, and he says, I've tried sounding the alarm about the vaccines causing cancer relapse, but the mainstream media don't want to know. And this one was very shocking. He talks about sudden explosive relapses in, in melanomas and things like this. 
following particularly the booster, especially when people had felt ill after the booster. And this is someone who had done a pro-vaccine article that he said was more of an interview back in the day, but then his son got myocarditis and then he completely you know, went hard the other way. But he says the mainstream media don't want to know. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, we, uh, so this was a story, we covered it um, a previous week where um, the Daily Skeptic published a, a letter that he'd written where he came out publicly, um, set a warning of the serious dangers of the vaccines, in particular as an oncologist, um, a professor of oncology, he was particularly warning about seeing stable cancer uh, relapse and have an explosive relapse, um, he said. Um, so, um, but he also highlights other other problems, myocarditis for his, his son, as you mentioned. And um, and that story got um, on our site, got on the Daily Skeptic, got well over one hundred thousand views. It was a major um, major article. And so now he's written a follow up uh, to that, where he explains himself. Some people, uh, in response to that article um, or that letter that we published, uh, criticised him, pointing out that in the middle of twenty twenty one, he'd written um, an article in the Daily Mail, um, as you've mentioned, Nick, where he encouraged. Um, young people to come and get their vaccines and uh, and supposedly debunked all the all the risks that you know by July 2021 were let's be honest becoming clear so he was severely criticized for that so he followed that up with this article where he says that he has been trying to set the record straight he has been trying to engage with the mainstream media and the press uh, to put something in the public domain where he explains his change of view and and expresses his warnings that he now feels a need to make about the vaccines uh, but they just don't want to know and it's again this 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 blackout this censorship uh, this time not of doctors and uh, from their regulators, but just from the media and journalists who just seem to not want to publish anything that is critical of the vaccines beyond the occasional story about, say, a coroner who said that someone died of the vaccine. You might get that. But anything that tries to suggest that this problem might be might be far more widespread than has, has been admitted, they do not want to know. Um, and it's a, it is a major problem because without the media publishing it, there is a lack of pressure for, for politicians to do anything about it. So it's, um, it's a major problem. Yeah, and sticking with the wacky world of COVID, but moving off vaccines, we have this uh, piece from Eugippius, I, I think that's correct. And the New York Times urges readers to mask up. And I, I pulled out a quote from this that is a bit long, but it appealed to me. It said, the poor pandemic faithful started out masking to save lives of the elderly and vulnerable, but now they find themselves in an unending hygiene prison from which the only escape is admitting they behave like fools for the past three years. If they can't do that, a bleak future awaits of persisting as the solitary idiotic masker in the grocery store and on the train, of demanding all their acquaintances produce negative tests before they're allowed to come to any party, and above all, of never being able to relax around other people. How living like this is better than occasional virus infections, nobody can explain. And that reminded me of my ex-girlfriend, who was obsessed with masks and made me do a <laughs> lateral flow test before I was allowed to see it. But she was very beautiful, so I was prepared to do it. But it's kind of what we were saying as well, Will, or what you were saying in the last story, that people adapting and changing, accepting this new reality. Obviously, there's loads of reasons people don't want this truth to be out. But there's also the psychological reason of, of turning around and, and, and admitting you were wrong. But sorry, I've spoken so much on that. What did you make of this mask story? Well, I think you've um, uh, you, you, you've said it all then, Nick. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's the New York Times, you know, bastion of lockdownism, of COVID alarmism. And they've been they've been doing some reporting on the Chinese protests and, and you know, taking the side of the protesters, which is not what they were doing with the protesters in the West, as many people have pointed out. So this hypocrisy, they seem to um, seem to be seem to think that protesting lockdowns in 
China is a good thing, but protesting lockdowns in the West is a is a bad thing. Um, so, so no consistency there from the New York Times. And here we have uh, again the New York Times uh, telling its its liberal readership that now winter is here. They want to um, that they should all be masking up again. And and this and Eugippius, uh, who is based in Germany, um, he's a German academic, reports on COVID, all things COVID from Germany, has uh, noted previously that uh, Germany is very much in this frame of mind and. And has actually introduced um, a, a winter masking law, uh, not for COVID, but just just for flu, just for an ordinary flu season. That uh, that in Germany, the states uh, are able to are able to impose mask mandates as they're now legally uh, allowed, uh, just as ordinary law, to to force their populations to wear masks just because it's winter. Again, it's just this 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 obsession, this uh, fetishization of of masks and and of covering faces which as we know just there is no good evidence that these masks do anything at all and yet they've become they've become this this totemic thing for uh for for lockdowners and liberals yeah exactly i've always been very anti-mask but that's the germans love a rule don't they and we knew it was only a matter of time before they said let's just mask up for everything and let's just end on this one a slight change of topic We've heard about the silent majority, but apparently there's a silent majority in the car industry who are concerned about electric vehicles. Yep. Akio Toyoda, the, who's in charge of uh, the company his grandfather founded, Toyota, um, has said that there is a silent majority of car manufacturers uh, in the car industry um, who have uh, serious reservations about whether electric vehicles are really the panacea, are, are really the sole thing that's going to replace internal combustion, um, petrol, uh, diesel vehicles. And so he's he's sounded this warning. He's been criticised for it. Toyota has been criticised for uh, supposedly being behind the curve on electric vehicles, uh, trying to do hydrogen and, uh, and not getting into the market. So some people saw it as being a uh, a way of of defending their um, their failure on that, but it seems that he is quite convinced, um, and he says that there are many who aren't who don't speak out because of the uh, the the effective self imposed censorship of uh, the green of the green net zero lobby uh, who aren't willing to to point out that the, the huge logistical practical problems of trying to have batteries in every single car in every single vehicle uh, that um, in the in the world and replacing them every ten years. Um, and just the the, sh- the huge amount of you know internal combustion cars mainly use iron, right? They mainly use a very very common very common metal. There's not much rare stuff in a normal car, but electric vehicles are full of really rare minerals and metals and materials. And apparently, the entire world is supposed to be getting a new a new car with a new battery every every ten years. I mean, and he's warning that uh, this is got some severe severe problems. Yeah, it will never catch on. I mean. But there is a big theme this week, I've noticed. Well, yeah, it's sort of people trying to get the truth out in various industries and bodies and just and being just prevented from it. And that's what we're seeing. And it just sort of reminds me, Tucker Carlson covered JFK this week. And it's like, we're finally getting the truth about JFK. So I believe that the truth on vaccines and all these things will come out. But it could, based on that, it could be quite a while, couldn't it? Yeah, let's hope that happens in less than 70 years. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that, would be, that would be the hope, 60 years. Uh, that would be the hope. Yes, that is a reasonable time frame. All right, thanks for all that, Will. And we won't see you next week because you're skiving and having some sort of Christmas break or something. And um, you're away, aren't you? That's right. Yep, yeah. I'm. Uh, I'm enjoying my Christmas. So, uh, so you'll have to do without me next week. Yeah, it's me and Toby are going to still grind out an episode. But um, and Will's a bit ill today, so I hope you feel better, Will, and and have a good Christmas. And we'll see you probably in what two weeks. 
That, yep, that's right. You too, Nick. Okay, cheers. Gary Neville had a big rant at the World Cup where he basically compared the treatment of workers in Qatar to the nurses' strikes over here and the rail strikes over here in a kind of fairly crass, felt like a Labour Party political broadcast in the middle of the football. And it was it was annoying because we just want to watch football. And it was also annoying because it was just one-sided. And I thought Kino should at least chip in with a defence of Milton Friedman just to give us <laughs> a bit of balance. Do you know what I mean? Because it was so socialist. And I also thought Kino missed a huge opportunity to utter his catchphrase because Neville was complaining, going on about the, the plight of the rail worker. And, and, and Keane should have just said, you're complaining about riding, riding a, driving a train. That's your job. Because <laughs> that's his phrase. Like, <laughs> that's your job. And it is their job. So why are they complaining? And uh, just in the bad accent club, I've just added my, uh, my cork accent to, 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 to some of Toby's accent. Uh, I can do the last one. That's your job. Anyway, uh, what do you think to that, Toby? That rant well, from Neville. Yeah, I, have some pity for me, Nick, because um, I was at a family lunch during the World Cup final, and my kids, who were also at the lunch, were kind of crowded round an iPad and watching it on silent, and kind of constantly kind of ooing and ahhing. And one of my sons um, put twenty quid on Argentina to win outright about six months ago when he got eight to one. Um, so he was, you know, he he was absolutely. Um, uh, uh, you know, he was completely mesmerized and spellbound by the whole event and absolutely wrapped up in the drama, hoping against hope that Argentina weren't going to lose, you know, at the final hurdle. Um, but anyway, so I was watching my kids excitedly watching what was clearly an epic World Cup final, but sitting at another part of the table. And I, I wasn't even allowed to glance in the direction of the iPad because then, you know, other family members would get cross with me for, for, for thinking that the World Cup was more important than this once in a year opportunity to see my family members. So I'm the only time I managed to kind of actually watch something was, um, a, you know, a, there was a kind of a, a moment when people were kind of clearing and, um, you know, I, I managed to steal a moment. And all I saw was the Gary Neville Labour broadcast. That was really my, that was the entirety of my World Cup experience. Gary's party political broadcast on behalf of the striking nurses. Um, it was, yeah, really disappointing. I mean, it, when Gary was grilled by Ian Hislop on um, Have I Got News For You, you remember he famously said that, um, you know, he could just stay at home and not criticise Qatar, but he had chosen instead to go there and criticise Qatar in Qatar. And, you know, Hislop pointed out, well, you could actually criticise Qatar uh, while remaining at home. You don't have to take the Qatari shilling in order to be rude about the Qataris. Um, but actually, he wasn't rude about the Qataris. I mean, um, he actually made a kind of tourist film for Qatar while he was out there taking the Qatari shilling. In fact, you know, when he went to Qatar, it, he was as rude about the Tory government as he is when he stays at home. It was as though, you know, he went to Qatar in order to give himself a platform to carry on kind of trotting out these kind of, you know, sub-literate Labour Party cliches. Yeah, he um, went over there yeah, to criticise here. He did the sort of opposite exactly. of what Hislop said. Yeah, exactly, good point. Exactly what he's going to say, yeah. Yeah, you said it better than me. Um, but, <laughs> well, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's it. He went over there to criticize. Absolute madness. Yeah. And um, yeah, you're right. I mean, the fact that he took the Qatari money was the extra annoying thing. It would have been annoying enough just to ruin the football, just to be partisan. But you're also a hypocrite. Shut up, Gary. It was awful. Just on your family dinner, reminds me of a couple of things. One, I missed the great Federer versus Nadal epic match. 
uh, with some friends. But you remind me of a couple of things. My dad, for some reason, always had to end up going around to my grand's house, my mum's mum, during the Wimbledon final. My dad's a, like a lifelong tennis fan and player. And he, just was, he was always so annoyed that he had to go around. What were you thinking, Toby, having a family lunch at this time? And this is why I, I'm a sort of loner and will never get married because I just can't stand things like that. How could you, surely you could have just said it's the World Cup final. Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't, um, I, it, it, I didn't check the dates. And I, I then suddenly thought, crikey, what if England actually are in the final? We're going to have to cancel this lunch. Um, uh, so when they weren't in the final, I thought, well, um, and you know, and it, it's, it's trying to rearrange these things is quite tricky. Um, lots of different moving parts. You, you also reminded me, I was at this party and it, I had to really be at the party because they'd funded a project we were doing. And it was the semi-final of the England Euros. And, and we were at this party, so we couldn't watch it properly. You could barely see it. And then just as, during the extra time, when it just came to extra time, we had to stop it and listen to a speech from Simon Evans. And like an after they did a speech, I'm sure Simon wasn't that thrilled to be doing it either. And I was like, bro, we're trying to watch that. It was unbelievable. It was all right. It was a good speech. But um, yeah, maybe it doesn't matter anymore. Football's gone woke. And uh, I would even argue, Toby, what do you think to this? Oh, and by the way, Macron getting blanked after the game by Mbappe was hilarious. And Salt Bay. Oh, that was, yeah, that was quite funny. That was probably the, I, the high point. I, I saw it later on Twitter, but, um, or someone sent me a video actually. Um, but yeah, that was quite, that was, it was, he really didn't want to kind of give Macron <laughs> the kind of photo opportunity he was craving, did he? He was just like, he couldn't have been more standoffish and uninterested. It was just, he just completely blanked him. Yeah, because I suppose Mbappe is a much bigger hero in France than Macron, and who's a bit of an idiot. And Salt Bay was even worse. He tried to get involved with Messi and he ended up grabbing the World Cup and like showing off it. And he's this, weird guy who you know created that restaurant where he puts an awful lot of salt on steaks and celebrities go there it's like bro why are you handling the world cup and everyone hated him there's a part where he's trying to grab messi's arm and messi's just like ignoring what him. was he doing on the how do you get on the pitch you know is there like do you have to have like a special pass you have to have a really um, really expensive steak restaurant i suppose argentina yeah. are quite big on steaks aren't they that's one of the best places for rearing maybe maybe he was maybe they brought maybe the Argentine. Tinian team brought them with them as their kind of personal chef to give them steaks before the game. I don't know. Yeah, it's a big it's steak like country, isn't it? The, the pampas grass and all that. Um, that. That's my theory. But my other theory, Toby, is that the whole thing was rigged. Allow me to go full Delling Paul here. <laughs> I got into my head that it was rigged, right? Because everyone was saying Messi got, what was it, six penalties in seven games? And I was thinking, yeah, Messi got all those penalties. The organizer, the Qatari organizer, said it'd be so great if Messi could win. FIFA guy Infantino said, wouldn't it be amazing if Messi could win? He's never won a World Cup. They're all saying, we'd love it if Messi could win. And then I'm watching this game and I'm just going, yeah, France are ahead. Or sorry, France have clawed their way back and it's three all or something. But it's it's rigged that Argentina will win. So when they won, I was like, yeah. And pe- Messi's penalty at the end, now maybe he's just a genius, which he is, but he rolled in that penalty. I wasn't, know, his wasn't first even penalty. in the corner. No, no, the, the, the yeah. penalty shootout one. Wasn't even in the... No. Yeah, sorry, that's what I mean. His first penalty in the penalty shootout. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, sorry, yeah, it was he the first penalty. He just dinked it in. in. The keeper, you know, only... Ju- the keeper, like, tried to get out of the way of it. It looked like to me very dodgy. <clears throat> and I started to think, this is rigged. I thought, this is exactly what Qatar wanted. An incredibly exciting World Cup final. And they're never that exciting. I've been watching the World Cup since 1990. They're always 1-0. Occasionally, like, oh, 3-0 France, I think it was in 98. But that was still boring. They're always boring. This epic 3-all penalty shootout final... Epic. So we, we all have to say, well, the football was amazing. We all have to concede that. And then we have to say, yeah, Messi's the best. And now he's our new ambassador. Isn't it all a bit too convenient? Oh, oh, and France got poisoned before the game, Toby, as Piers Morgan said. <laughs> Did you hear that? 
What's yeah, your I, theory? I thought there was like a virus ripping through the French camp. I didn't know they'd they'd been put. Maybe that was virus the salt, inverted commas. Salt chef guy. Um, <laughs> salt. <laughs> so I met Andrew Tate last night, and you, f- regular listeners and followers of me will know I've been defending Andrew for m- many a, a month on uh, GB News and elsewhere. I wrote this article about him: the first uncancelled is Tate, the first person to become truly uncancelled, which I've talked about with him actually, that because he's been saying that as well. Yeah, it was really weird. So uh, it, I was at GB and he just suddenly came into the loo, which is a weird one. You know, they've got that weird intersex loo. Not that not that me or Tate are uh, different gender. <laughs> but um, so that was weird. You don't expect to see him because you're sort of used to seeing him on the internet. I didn't talk to him in the loo. I thought it'd be weird. But I talked to him outside and we just had a nice chat. I just said that I've been defending you on this channel, Andrew. And then after... Did you did you show him the tattoo you've got of his face? I thought it was forearm. too soon. I thought we'll we'll <laughs> we'll ease that in. Um, and then afterwards, you know, I hate getting photos. I've done, you know, I've worked with Will Smith. I never got a photo. They pre-slap Will Smith. I don't really do that kind of thing. But Josh was desperate <laughs> to get a photo for his kid, even though Josh doesn't like him and is a male feminist. You know, but everyone's son liked him. Like your sons, I think like him. And everyone's son, I seem to be on the same level as everyone's sons. I'm like a permanent teenager, but. So then, and then Martin, who was our producer, was like, yeah, go on, get a fit. I was like, no, no, no. And he said to Tate, oh, Nick doesn't want to because he thinks it's embarrassing or lame. So I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, you do, you do so many photos. And Tate was like, no, no, let's do it. So he did the pick. It was quite funny. He is big. I mean, he's a big guy. Uh, Simon noted his very good head polish. Simon Evans noted that. I noted, you know, he's got his teeth done. They look a lot better. And I did, I did think I'm a bit fat. And I looked at pictures of myself back in May and I was like, I was a lot, I was a lot thinner. I was a stone thinner in May and I felt a bit ashamed in front of, you know, top G. But then, <laughs> then I realized today I've lost like a one, like one and a half sto- uh, pounds since yesterday. I was like, I'm already being inspired by the top G. I put out the photo on Instagram. Loads of people have unfollowed me immediately, <laughs> a polarizing <laughs> figure, but it was fascinating to me. And he was a nice guy and I don't know how much it cost. Well, I do know how much it costs, but I'm not allowed to say GB to get him. Let's say his name should be several Gs, perhaps. Uh, so it costs oh, him a lot. What, 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 sorry, what show was he doing? Yeah, sorry, he was on the Dan Wooden show. Okay. It was a cool thing for GB to get him. We talked about, I said, look, you know, I defend you during that nonsense. I said they pretend to take the moral high ground. We can't fall for that. And he was like, absolutely. And, and he's, you know, it, we had a good chat about it. Quick brief chat, but very nice guy. You know, people say he's not, he's not a good guy. Very nice guy. And I've met a lot of famous people and stuff, but there's something more of an aura about Tate. And he's built, he's built this himself, of course, but he's just an impressive person. I've met, you know, I've met Will Smith. I've worked with all these people. I see me famous people at GB, but there was Wait, something. Hold on. Cully, you can't let that one slide. So when did you work with Will Smith? Oh, on that, on the, uh, the Aladdin movie on, um, yeah, it, with the guy Richie oh. was directing. I was writing, I was helping him write additional material and jokes for it and stuff. But you're saying you're saying this as though, oh yeah, on the Aladdin movie, as though um, we're supposed to know all about that. I didn't know you you wrote Aladdin. <laughs> no, no, I just helped. You out buried a the bit. lead here. What are you doing on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. you're a Hollywood screenwriter. No, it was not a big deal. I helped out a little bit on something. There was a couple of things where I got a line in, and then Will's guy went and told him, and he used it in, in you know improvised lines and stuff. We were just helping punch up the script. It wasn't much of a big thing. We were on Will's team. And, it, and, did, and did Guy Ritchie hire you to do that? No, no, it was hired through Will's Will's assistant. And um, how did how, how did how did he come to? But how did he? Why, why did he hire you? I was on some strange list. I was on, a, you know, I'm on a lot of lists, Toby, and um, mainly they're like, you know, far right hate <laughs> figures black, and stuff. Black, I was like blacklist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But this was a list where it was like UK good comedians or up and coming comedians or something like that. Okay. And then he, they watched everyone's video and they just liked mine because you know it had solid jokes and stuff like that. So yeah, that's right. how that happened. But it was all a bit weird. But it was perfectly. It was interesting. But I wouldn't compare it to meeting Top G. I'd say Top G is on a completely different level to Will Smith. There's, there is something about him. 
He lifts us all up, Toby, and makes us all better. So are you going to enroll at, um, is it called Hustlers University? I gather it's um, well, it's $50 a month. It, it's rebranded. It will teach you how to is, escape the matrix. Is that right? It's rebranded as the real world dot ai and it's you pay 100 i mean i sound like a, a spokesman you pay i think i think it's 147 the first, initially then you pay i think 49 dollars he had to rebrand hustles university because when he got cancelled he's like right we've got to have our own servers we've got to have our own everything and this is what we've got to do in future toby have our own servers our own video platforms you know everything discrete everything outside the matrix but no i'm not going to because it'd be feel a bit weird to be the, being in that when i've already met him i feel like we're more sort of on a sort of semi-equal footing now <laughs> You're like the guy who I remember. I remember when I went to America and um, when I when I went to university out there for a year. When I left university here, um, and um, I went around asking all my I was doing politics, and I went around asking all my professors, you know, what they thought of the special relationship, and they'd be like, "Excuse me." you know, these, these special relationship between Britain and America, do you think it's fraying? Is it in trouble? Is it stronger than ever? The special relationship, you know, I've never heard, I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> is that, is that, is this just something in England? And, and I realized that it feels like a special relationship to us, but to them, we're just, you know, another third rate power whom they have to kind of occasionally do business with. And it was, I felt almost like someone who'd sent a kind of fan letter to Tom Cruise and been sent, you know, a glossy photo and a kind of form letter back. And now I thought that Tom and I had a special relationship and it sounds a bit like having met Andrew, um, you now think that anyway, are you um, calling um, me a third think- rate power, Toby? <laughs> uh, I, I was comparing Tate to America. Thought you'd approve of that, but um, uh, a global superpower. But um, I think you should. I think it would be actually a very funny. It would give you, uh, you know, reams of very amusing material for your Substack. I mean, you know, if a Guardian journalist, um, uh, you know, enrolled on Andrew Tate's um, course and then wrote something scathing and quote unquote funny about it, it would be completely predictable. Um, But if you could do it, you know, from the point of view of a fanboy. Who, who is gradually getting more and more disillusioned. It, it could be very funny. Yeah, it could be. Although I would hate to criticise the, the top G, but you can go <laughs> to my Substack, by the way, nickdixon.substack.com, and read my article about Tate being the first uncancelled man. I was a bit gutted I didn't have an interview podcast ready. You know, I could have said, come on my podcast. We don't really do interviews here. I was like, that was stupid, Nick. You were too fat and you didn't have a podcast. So I've learned a lot. <laughs> I've learned a lot how I can improve myself and stop being a broke boy. Uh, he could t- have asked him onto this podcast. He could have done, you know, during the on the twenty seventh. He could have done the Will slot because Will's not available. You're right on the twenty seventh. And someone didn't even someone suggested that to me later, and I was like, oh yeah, but you know, we're not quite on the level, maybe, but we'll we'll get there. What about? Do you want to talk? I mean, this is going to be very self indulgent. Our producer Jason will probably cut all of this, but do you want to talk about my unheard debate, or would that be too much self? Yeah, no, I want to hear a little bit about that. I want to hear it because I think that I, when you told me about it, that did sound quite interesting. Um, so it was a balloon debate, and it was um, it was uh, was it the Battle of Ideas Christmas Party? No, it was, uh, or was un- it the Living Freedom? Yeah, unheard Christmas Party slash Living Freedom. Okay, yeah, Living Freedom. Yeah, which is a, which is an annual um, event organised by um, the Battle of Ideas, Claire Fox's charity, and they invite lots of young people from all over the country to come for a kind of residential weekend in London, where they get to learn about free speech and why it's important. I I, I usually give a speech at it every year, so I'm a big fan of Living Freedom. Okay, that's more more about it than I knew. I didn't really know anything about it. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do this debate thing, and um, so I show up. I had a cracking headache, but. I get on there, and it's people like Emma Webb, you know, she's very good, and um, Charlie Bentley Astor, is, is, I'm, hopefully I'm getting a name right, sorry if I'm not Charlie, um, and various people like that, and there was six of us 
and you're in an alleged balloon. There's no actual balloon, Toby. And you just have to make a case. We had to make a case for a, a cultural artifact that best represented freedom. And uh, Emma went with the cross because she's very serious. And Charlie went with the Spitfire, which is interesting. This guy, Ralph, went with um, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate. I went with Brass Eye from 1997, the popular satirical show. But the main difference with, with me, not to brag, was they were all sitting down reading out their things very seriously. Whereas my stand-up training just kicked in and I stood up. I was the only one that stood up. Immediately started getting massive laughs from the crowd, turned it into a comedy gig, but I still made my point. So I got the most votes in the first round, smashed the first round, won. I went through the second round, which was the final. They counted the hands that went up for me. And I thought I'd won again quite clearly, but they gave me third. I was like, what is this? This is, this is stop the steal, guys. So I, I, I really understood how Trump felt. I was like, it, you know, it, it has been rigged. But, you know, a good experience. It's just a weird one for me because I've written a substack about it, guys, inevitably, so you can read that. But it's just weird for me to be leaving comedy after all these years and then end up in a much smaller room than the rooms I was playing, essentially doing comedy, but for a bunch of weird Marxists instead. And as I said at the time, and the difference is Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate doesn't get a cheer at Preston Frog and Bucket. So it's a different scene and there's no stage and no fee. So I'm like, have I gone backwards, Toby, and ended up just doing unpaid smaller gigs for a bunch of free speech no, weirdos. That, I am proving. No, I think I think I think that's the wrong way to look at it. You now you should now think of yourself as, you know, a public intellectual um who's invited to um these um prestigious gigs being thrown by these important organizations that are kind of the last line of defense in the battle to defend free speech. I think it's a, a huge feather in your cap that you were in the balloon debate at the living freedom unheard christmas party and i'm sorry i wasn't there i, th- I think i was doing the mark stein show you're right i should i do appreciate it and i thank claire and everyone involved alistair who who ran it and uh, yeah claire was there she's very cool claire fox we love and so yeah it was it was great and it, i did prove that with a bit of public speaking experience you can get away with a lot of style over substance toby i mean i hardly need to tell you but that's been <laughs> <laughs> that's, that was my approach All right, hope that wasn't too self-indulgent, guys. Now let's get on to everyone's favourite section, Peak Woke. So I've got a couple of Peak Wokes this week. So they're not my best ever. I might just launch in because they're not my best ever. I've got, firstly, Shemima Begum is going to be the focus of this BBC podcast series. And uh, it's just a very BBC thing to do, isn't it? I believe the, the series is not new, but the focus being on Shemima Begum is new. So it's the second series. It's, it's what is it called? I'm Not a Monster, the Shemima Begum story. So I'm Not a Monster is, is not a new series, but the Shemima Begum aspect is. And I just thought this was pretty woke from the BBC. We're going to get this kind of take on why Shemima is just this, this oppressed heroic figure. I imagine maybe they'll just be very, very balanced, but I think it's going to be a little bit of a PR job for Shemima just by existing almost in itself is legitimizing her a little bit. So that's one of my peak wokes. I think this other one that I've got is a bit better, and this just came in. This is a so this is organization TGEU. I don't really know what it stands for because I, I clicked on it and it still didn't tell me. And this is a sort of one of these trans things. And they said, "Did you know this year, so and so adopted the amazing Progress Pride flag versions developed by Jason Domino and some other at?" And anyway, this design includes both the intersex flag and the red umbrella. So it's kind of that weird pointy arrow that we've seen now quite a lot with the kind of, it's got a yellow triangle with a weird circle in it. Then it's got white, then pink, then blue, then brown, then black. And that is poking, sort of poking itself into a red sort of, uh, what, septagon? 
but without with one side taken out because there's a this thing's poking it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm describing this well. And the ba- against the background of the sort of normal rainbow flag. So it's one of these ultra rigged up kind of hot rotted rainbow flags. And this is to represent, let me just read it out because they've explained what this is for, for all of us who are not, are not woke enough. The intersex flag was created by Morgan Carpenter of Intersex Human Rights Australia in 2013 and is globally used by the intersex movement today. The red umbrella was first used by Slovenian artist Tadej Podjakar in 2001 <laughs> and is a symbol of sex workers' rights around the world. So they've adapted the sex workers flag, Toby, and the intersex flag with the trans flag and the existing LGBTQI plus 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 flag. And they've come up with this kind of mega flag of a weird arrow, sort of a bit like dad's army, sort of those arrows on dad's army, sort of who do you think <laughs> you are kidding, Mr. Intersex, if you think you can avoid my weird penetration? And they're sort of <laughs> penetrating the red, the red pattern thing, which represents sex workers, so I don't know, Toby. I mean, it's pretty peak woke. I don't understand any of it. I do feel some sympathy. If you're genuinely intersex, like you're born with like different bits and stuff, that is a real thing compared to some of these ones that aren't real. Though I don't really quite know why sex workers are involved in it. I don't really understand that. That seemed pretty peak woke to me. It's odd, isn't it, that the um, that flags have become so totemic in the kind of woke world, isn't it? You know, is it is it kind of like flags used to be very totemic for you know the non-woke world for the traditional world you know um you would hold up you you would march under the banner of your colors um as a battalion you know in the napoleonic wars um and you would fight to the death to protect your flag and not allow it to be captured by the french um you know do you think the woke thought um we're going to capture the flags of the other side by kind of um, by 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 turning flags into our thing, and meaning they, they it, 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 it's almost a bit like that, isn't it? It's odd that they should that that, that flags should have become you know the, the kind of wall on which they want to kind of write their names. And the most um, amazing thing is those hypocrites on Twitter who, who call someone a flag shagger or they have a go at flags while they have the rainbow, <laughs> the EU, the Ukraine, some the trans flag, probably sometimes like a Scotland flag. It's like you've got sixteen flags in your bio and they don't even see it. It's incredible. Anyway, so um, my um, my peak works this week. I don't know if you saw, but the um, Museum of the Home, um, which for decades has been um, celebrating Christmas by putting on a Christmas exhibit in which they um, showed how homes in the past would have been decorated to celebrate Christmas, going back to Tudor times. Um, they've renamed it the Winter Festival in an effort to be more inclusive. Um, so it's no longer the Christmas festival, it's the winter festival. Uh, something like this seems to come up almost on a daily basis now. But the Museum of the Home, I think, is a good candidate um, to be nominated in Peak Woke because, of course, it used to be known as the Jeffrey Museum for over 100 years, but it changed its name last year um, because um, Robert Jeffrey, um, after whom it was named and who donated um, the premises um, in you know the 17th century, um, was linked to the transatlantic slave trade. And they issued um, uh, and, and they've actually um, uh, I think they've I think they've um, 
I think they're going to remove his statue. That's the plan um, from outside the building. So ungrateful are they uh, for this uh, uh, legacy? Um, anyway, so that was my that was my first Pete woke um, changing the name of the Christmas exhibit, which is an annual favourite for the locals to um, the winter festival. And it's now going to celebrate Diwali, Hanukkah, and the Lunar New Year as well as Christmas. Um, and then my um, my second peak woke was um, was actually going to be. Oh, I'm glad we didn't do this in the end. It was going to be um, Lady Susan Hussey's apology to Ngozi. Um, uh, and what, what what it's not that that I'm nominating as my peak woke. Bad though that was, uh, I really felt sorry for poor old lady hussey who'd obviously been forced to do this by the royal family in order to try and patch up the damage that she'd supposedly caused by asking Ngozi where she was from um and uh, but no the peak woke bit was um harry and megan quickly followed up with a request for a similar kind of um uh, uh peace and reconciliation meeting at the palace in which they were clearly expecting you know king charles um Prince William, um, Kate, even the children to line up and take turns to apologise to Meghan um, for <laughs> all their racist um, uh, uh, treatment of her. Um, so that was pretty extraordinary. And it shows, you know, the um, uh, the dangers of apologising. Hmm. I'm not sure who wins this week because last week you had, I think you had it, you, winter closure period, which Brighton University suggested we call yeah. Christmas. And your, your other one seems quite similar to that. Your second one's quite complicated. I'm not sure it's peak woke for someone to want their own apology. Then again, mine are not that strong this week either. I mean, the flag, if you see it, is quite strong. Is the BBC thing going to be peak woke or is it just journalism? Which do you think wins it this week, Toby? I think I think we can. I think it's honours even. Let's split the spoils um, okay. because it's Christmas. Okay. Sorry, because it's because it's uh, winterful. It's, it's winter closure period. We both get peak woke. No one gets weak poke. All right, that seems fair to me. Thanks for all your reviews, by the way, guys, and your downloads. We had the most downloads ever in our first week in last week's episode, so that's great. So the podcast is building. We appreciate it. And I don't actually have any reviews this week. I have a little bit of feedback I'm going to read, Toby, and we can cut it if it's too insulting. Because um, <laughs> it's about the Musk debate we had. You know, we had that debate about Elon Musk. And someone said, Toby, you're off your trolley. Had Musk offered the Twitter files to the Guardian or anyone else, they would have buried it. Even the Spectator, I suspect. He found the least alt-right journos, I would say, not alt-right at all, Barry Weiss, particularly lefty, he could trust, and gave them full access to the records. And still the MSN buried it. I think James D. may have a point. Remove blinkers. And he also said, I think um, T's problem, that's you, Toby, is he wants to be liked by his peers. Nick and James D. don't care. And I wanted to defend you a little bit there and say, I think it's just that we have different peers I mean, you, you've been a journalist and I one. I'm not a journalist, so I can just say whatever. I think James, to, be, to his credit, is prepared to alienate his peers. I've alienated my peers in the, in the, in the comedy world, you could say. So maybe, actually, I'm talking myself, like, yeah. maybe I am really brave. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think, um, I, I'm not sure if it's about, I don't think it's about not wanting to alienate my peers or keep a foot in both camps, Barry Weiss style. Um, I think it's just, um, I think it's just a perfectly reasonable point of view, um, which uh, which I thought I made a very good fist of defending. But anyway, um, <laughs> he evidently doesn't agree with me and is trying to think of some kind of explanation for how I could possibly be so foolish. Um, but no, I really think that. Um, I really do think that um, uh, he could have found a mainstream media outlet which would have um, covered the Twitter files and they would have been much more widely discussed and 
harder to ignore. But anyway, let's okay. not go back over no, no, old well, ground. But you need to go f- through and find things that support you, Toby, because when I find things, they inevitably seem to be praising me, and it's a bit of a problem. So <laughs> It seems to me, yeah, I'm, I'm the one accused here of, uh, of caring too much about winning the approval of my peers, and yet every week, here you are, reading out <laughs> tweets and reviews which are incredibly complimentary to you and quite rude to me. <laughs> I think we know who cares about peer, peer group <laughs> approval in this relationship. Uh, I just need it, Toby, because I get attacked so badly online. I know you do as well, but I actually read some of them. And, um, you know, I just need the support uh, because of my uh, fragile self-esteem. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Unless you've got anything to add, Toby, I think we we might leave it there. Oh, you know, you well, had I one thing to add, actually, didn't you? I just, yeah, I just, I just wanted to say that... Um, on Sunday, the Free Speech Union um, launched its Writers Advisory Council. We've found all these writers and publishers and agents to um, form our Writers Advisory Council, and um, we've kind of crafted this offer to writers who uh, may, with some justification, feel that the Writers Trade Union, the Society of Authors, isn't doing as good a job as it should be for standing up for uh, the rights of authors. Um, it's uh, It's been pretty weak in defending gender-critical writers in particular from attacks by trans rights activists. Anyway, so um, if there are any writers listening to this podcast, um, please come and check out our offer. It's no more expensive to join as a writer than it is for anyone else. It's about a third of the price of being a member of the Society of Authors. We think we offer some of the same services, but we will, I think, more robustly uh, defend your freedom of expression if you come under attack or if your publisher tries to renege on a deal or if you get no platform or the rest of it. So um, please do consider that. And it's on our homepage, www.freespeechunion.org. All right, definitely do that. And as always, of course, it's dailyskeptic.org to donate and nickdixon.substack.com for my amazing articles. And I'm off to watch Clarkson's Farm and probably just leave it running. I might not even watch it just to give him the numbers. And uh, until next time, guys, stay skeptical. I thought you were going to say goodbye, Toby, but you didn't. <laughs> Happy Christmas. <laughs>